Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to lecturer at Australian Catholic University and researcher in the ACU Hamstring Injury Group, Jack Hickey. Thanks for tuning in to episode 243 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get on Jack for this episode on the podcast. So given Jack's expertise and PhD research practice in the area of hamstring rehabilitation, obviously that is the main focus of this chat today. So going through uh, some of Jack's research in terms of the the mechanisms behind um, hamstring injuries and looking at the the role of eccentric training in in, in the rehabilitation of hamstring injuries and also the role of isometric training, um, some some protocols that that Jack used in his clinic um, and also, like I say, some of the research that that has come out and, um, and is going to be coming out over the next couple of months in terms of recommendations Um, along the lines of um, hamstring injury uh, rehabilitation. So really interesting chat with Jack um, and he is speaking, as we mentioned in the episode, on the 21st and 22nd of June at the ACU uh, Notre Dame conference at Notre Dame. So if you are around in the area and would uh, like to hear Jack speak as well as um, Kyle uh, Skinner from Notre Dame, Shona Halson at ACU, amongst many, many others. Um, there is a link in the show notes where you can have a little look and uh, get tickets if you're going to be in the area and interested. But this episode is absolute gold for those who are interested um, in hamstring injuries. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by the University of Notre Dame and Australian Catholic University who are excited to host their second annual Human Performance Summit. This year's focus will be on moving past the barriers that limit the integration of performance teams. So the Human Performance Summit, the performance team puzzle, will be held in the beautiful University of Notre Dame campus on Friday, June the 21st and Saturday, June the 22nd. Rather than hosting individuals to speak on generic topics, there's a focus on bringing in performance teams to speak on how they operate through success and failure. So each one of these presentations will be followed by an intimate question and answer portion, and then tying everything together with a 90 minute practical session. It's something that I've spoke to loads of people about recently, and people are finding less value in repeated presentations at conferences, but more value in the conversations that go on the hallways. So both Friday and Saturday night, they'll be hosting an event on campus with activities geared towards sharing an organic discussion. And it was these events last year that proved to be the highlight of the conference. So if you're interested in getting to know more about the conference, I've put a couple of links in the show notes, which will take you to the presenter list and more information on the conference itself. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, 
precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMAGU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMAGU, head over to the website imeasureu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureu. So without further ado, over to the episode with Jack Hickey. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this morning or this evening for Jack, I'm welcoming Jack Hickey to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, mate. G'day, Rob. Thanks for having me, mate. Thank you for coming on. So headsets ready, looking the part. Absolutely. <laughs> but just, just before we get into the uh, nuts and bolts of it, just want to get, give us a bit of a insight into your background and how you made your way to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. So I suppose my uh, my background um, is you know working here within Australia as a clinical exercise physiologist. Which you know when we chatted, it's um, somewhat of a a little bit of a unique profession, I suppose. In in that um, within Australia, we have an accreditation where we have a an exercise profession where we prescribe exercise as our main form of rehabilitation for um, chronic disease, for musculoskeletal injuries and conditions, and. I suppose my background being more from exercise science um, and having a, a keen interest in sport, sports injury was, was sort of always my area. So, um, you know, after doing my undergrad in, in what was called human movement then, going on and doing a master's of clinical exercise physiology, um, I then worked for a few years in uh, private practice, musculoskeletal rehab and, and sports injuries. Um, and throughout that time, I was a little bit involved in, in research with, with Dave Opar and uh, Tony Shield in the, the Hamstring Injury Research Group um, and always had an interest in research and um, yeah, it was Dave who, who really encouraged me to come back and get involved in, in research and um, some would say stupidly tackle a, a PhD and uh, you know get involved in that world and sort of apply the, the clinical skill set to, um, to the world of hamstring injury. So um, yeah, that's sort of my, my background and I completed my PhD here at ACU in Melbourne sort of between 2015 and, and 2018. So I finished up um, sort of last year, probably this time last year really, and sort of have transitioned now into a full-time academic role here at ACU, sort of splitting my time across uh, lecturing, uh, research, and then also a little bit of clinical work in our uh, internal uh, EP clinic uh, here as well. So uh, a nice sort of mix of things, which I'm definitely very fortunate to, to have. And, um, you know, I've got a, a great team of people working here at ACU, which, uh, you know, makes it not really feel too much like a job, which is great. Happy days. So just talk to us a little bit about where you fit. I mean, you guys have been, and when I say you guys, the, the research team have been pumping out research um, like there's no tomorrow. But where do you fit in the kind of grand scheme of things in terms of that research group? Yeah, look, probably a, a fairly small cog. I would have thought it's a, it's a pretty, a pretty large group. And um, as I mentioned, you know, the group kind of spawned from um, from Tony Shield and, and Dave Opar. And um, you know, Tony now sort of is up in up in Queensland, which is where Dave did his PhD. And there's sort of the arm of research is up in Queensland with Tony, and then uh, Dan Messer and Matt Bourne, who's now back up in Queensland, and, and Steve Dewig as well. Um, and then the sort of ACU arm of the group now, you know, down here we've got um, Dave Opar, myself, uh, Ryan Timmons and, and also Narav Mania and then sort of a host of um, PhD and, and master's students as well. So I suppose, as I mentioned, my, my background being as a, a clinical exercise physiologist, the rehab space is um, where I sort of have a, a piece of the puzzle to, to fit and that's the skill set that uh, I'd, I'd like to think I can bring to the group. 
Um, so, yeah, anything sort of rehab-related um, within our group's research is, is probably um, where I fit in. Um, we obviously have natural crossover between that and those guys clearly contribute to those projects. And um, from an injury prevention and performance point of view, I'll certainly contribute to those things as well. But um, I suppose that's sort of where I fit in the, um, in the team, as it were. Cool. So before we get into your expertise, it'd be great to just set the groundwork in terms of um, the mechanisms for hamstring injury and just give us a bit of a, a base from which to from which to jump off from and get into the rehab side of things and the return to play and stuff like that. But to get that that base would be really would be really um, interesting from your point of view. Yeah, for sure. And I suppose from a um, somewhat a, a clinical or a rehab point of view, it, it's always a great place to start is is looking at the mechanism of injury because you need to consider that um, how an injury happened as, as part of your rehabilitation. There's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, obviously, if, if you follow the research related to hamstring strain injury, um, you know, most people are fairly aware that, that high-speed running and, um, you know, generally sprinting is um, involved um, a lot of the time in mechanisms of hamstring injury. But we also know that there are, um, you know, other mechanisms and more your stretch type hamstring injury uh, mechanisms, which, you know, might depend on the, the sport or the activity that someone's undertaking. Um, so, you know, that goes right back to the work of Carl Askling where he sort of categorised your, your sprinting type hamstring injuries and your stretch type hamstring injuries and, and they sort of present perhaps a little bit differently. But I suppose in, in my own experience, you, you do often see then um, some of the combined sort of sprinting or high-speed running and uh, stretch type injuries as well. And um, I suppose Australian rules football is in – an example of that where you potentially have a, an athlete who's running at high speeds but then maybe executing a secondary skill like kicking um, or potentially with uh, contact being a contact sport going into a large degree of hip flexion to pick up a ball or having an, um, an opponent push them while they're at speed. Um, I've often seen that as a mechanism of injury. Um, and so if you really strip it back at the end of the day, it's a, a high force being placed on the, the lengthening hamstring muscles most of the time. Um, you know, there is certainly a lot of debate out, out there as to whether, you know, the mechanism of injury involves an eccentric or an isometric contraction. And to be totally honest, I, I sort of I don't try to get too caught up in that because at the end of the day, it's the activity that's occurring is generally, um, you know, a high-speed movement um, or a high-velocity movement. And whether the, the underlying contraction is eccentric or, or isometric, um, I think at the end of the day, we know that the activity that's being performed, and that's the activity we have to prepare the athlete for a lot of the time. In terms of that isometric versus eccentric debate, I mean, I know you're not going to get, do I have to go too deep into it, but just want to explain to us what them schools of thought are. That's yeah, possible. look, I mean, I, I certainly don't claim to be be an expert in terms of you know muscle mechanics and, and biomechanics, and there's you know people who're far better versed to, to talk about that than me. But I suppose the 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 argument comes back to whether, and it's often related to a sprinting type mechanism of hamstring strain injury, whether the actual musculotendinous unit is undergoing an, an active lengthening contraction, or whether you know the the musculotendinous unit itself is undergoing an isometric contact contraction and we have some lengthening of the tendon so you've got your um your in-series elastic components and you know I, look i think you can kind of argue about it until you're blue in the face a little bit um and i'll probably leave it to people who are um you know far better um qualified to, to talk about it really to um, provide more insight but 
I suppose there are the two schools of thought and that then leads to inform people's preventative strategies and also their rehabilitation strategies. Um, and you certainly see that where people probably like to put themselves in, in one camp or the other. And I think um, we're probably developing our thinking a bit to go, well, there's not going to be one absolute way to deal with everything from a prevention and a rehab point of view. Um, so I think there's certainly a place for isometric training in rehabilitation and in prevention. And, um, you know, we certainly feel there's a place for eccentric strength training um, as part of that as well. So um, I think it always comes back to providing an adequate justification for, for what you're doing in your exercise prescription. Um, and if there's some some evidence to support that, that, that always helps. Um, I suppose at this point in time, there's there's probably a greater weight of evidence in terms of um, the, the prescription of eccentric strength training from a preventative point of view and, and probably from a rehabilitation point of view. And that's not to discredit the use of isometric training at all. Um, it's just the fact that you know, we currently, that's where the evidence sits. And I think um, there's some people um, around the traps at the moment doing some great work um, investigating isometric exercise interventions and, and we'll see um, the effect of those in time. And um, that'll just add to the to the knowledge base, which is you know what we're in the the business of doing. Absolutely. So this is going to be horrendously crowbarred into this conversation now, but I'm just going to say it before I forget. You're speaking at the ACU Notre Dame conference in a couple of weeks. Just want to give a bit of an insight into what you're going to be chatting about, so people are aware and can hopefully book on if they're in the um, if they're in the vicinity. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So, yeah, the um, conference coming up in a, in a few weeks' time at University of Notre Dame. So, I think it's the 21st and 22nd of June. So, you know, I'm very fortunate and feel very privileged to be asked to, to present as, as part of that. Um, and I suppose the the title of the summit is the, the Performance Team Puzzle. So, we're really looking at, in a, in a high-performance environment, how different, uh, you know, professionals, practitioners can, can play a role um, whether it be from a, an athletic preparation, injury prevention, um, in, in my case, return to play and, and return to sport performance. So, um, you know, this session that, that I'm speaking as, as part of, that will certainly be the, the focus in terms of looking at uh, return to play. Um, and me, myself specifically, I'll probably focus a lot around our work on uh, strength training or eccentric strength training as part of rehabilitation and the practitioner's decision-making related to how do you go about the decision of actually introducing uh, eccentric exercise and progressing exercise throughout rehabilitation and uh, perhaps some methods of uh, objective strength assessment that can inform uh, your decision-making processes related to that. So, yeah, really looking forward to that, mate. It's a, it's a great opportunity and, um, you know, under no illusions that we're very privileged to be in a position to, to be able to go to those events and uh, present some of our work. Excellent. So we'll come back to a lot of that um, as we go through the, the episode, but just coming back a little bit to, um, to the mechanisms of, of injury and just talk about injury rates. So you've, you've spoken about the, and it's led me very nicely into this, um, the performance team puzzle at the, um, at the conference, but we've got increasing amounts of research. We've got increasing amount of expertise in, high-performance um, departments in football clubs, uh, Aussie rules, rugby, whatever it may be, everyone's getting more staff, everyone's getting more expertise. Is that reflected in the injury rates? Are we seeing a, a decrease in injury rates? Are we understanding it enough to be able to do something about it in the field? Yeah, look, I think it's a, it's a really difficult question because 
you look one thing with being involved in research is if you look at the the time that it takes from you know a research study a to be conducted um you know to be conducted with some level of scientific rigor go through the peer review process get hopefully published and then once it's published you know potentially be implemented that process is a is a very slow one and i think you know, even in some of the research that you may read related to injury rates and um, and incidence rates of different injuries, it's going to be somewhat outdated because by the time it goes through that that process, um, you know, it's a couple of years down the track. So, in terms of knowing what's going on currently in in sporting uh, different sports and um, you know within I suppose different high performance sports scenarios, it's important to obviously look at the research, but then also you know, speak to people involved in clubs and, and find out their own experiences with um, the challenges that they face day to day. And that's a really important thing as a researcher to be able to do is communicate uh, with those people and find out, you know, what are the challenges that they face and you know, are they finding within their own environment, are hamstring injuries a massive problem and is it something that they struggle to deal with? Um, I think for the most part, we know that hamstring strain injuries are, you know, in any running-based sport, they're always going to be a problem to some extent because we push the body, um, you know, during high speed running efforts and, you know, stretching out to long muscle lengths and, you know, we're going to place the body under stress and in particular the hamstrings. So we want to try to be as resilient as we can. Um, and I, I think within probably, you know, where I sit here in Melbourne and um, probably the most contact I have in terms of elite sport yeah, here is probably within uh, Australian rules football and the, the AFL, and I do think we're probably seeing a bit of a trend uh, here of there's much better lines of communication um, a lot of the time with, with, uh, within clubs in terms of strength and conditioning staff and, and physios um, and even the medical um, fraternity within the clubs. I think they communicate very well here in, in my experience and within Australia here. Um, you know, there's, there's very good overlap. I think the physios who work within Australian rules football um, for the most part are excellent and are generally quite well versed in strength and conditioning and, and exercise prescription. Um, and the same can be said for the strength and conditioning staff um, in a lot of the lead Australian sport. Um, they're quite well versed in, in injury management and in particular injury prevention. So I think that that crossover between those professions is really important um, and you know, I do think we are seeing better management um, of those conditions now and probably a better understanding of the importance of, you know, injury prevention and exposure to high-speed running, exposure to uh, eccentric strength training um, and, you know, factoring all those things in. So I think we are making inroads, um, but that translating to, I suppose, the tangible outcome of reduced rates of injury um the proof will probably be in the pudding in, in a few years' time and it's something that, as I said, it, it takes a while for those results to, to really take shape. Um, and one thing you can look at is even, you know, a sport like the AFL put out their annual injury report each year and, you know, year to year there's always going to be some fluctuations with, um, with injury rates and you can be a bit, I suppose, um, knee-jerk in terms of re your reaction and see it a decrease one year to the next and then all of a sudden the next year injury rates have gone back up again so you really need to look at trends over time um so yeah it's a long-winded way of saying it it's a, it's it's a difficult one um but i do think um certainly here within australia we're, we're making probably improvements in terms of the way that we that we manage um 
both prevention and rehab for, for hamstring strain injury. Cool. So I just feel like we're still setting the setting the groundwork here for, for, for what's to come. But in terms of traditional hamstring injury rehab, <clears throat> I know it's something you've talked about previously. You just want to talk to a little bit about what that maybe looks like and potentially the, the issues that arise off the back of what we might say traditional. Yeah, for sure. And and again, it's a it's that one of we talk about it and, and I'm cognizant of it myself when even, you know, writing a paper or, or presenting or talking about it and you know, we look at, at research and we see or clinical recommendations for, for hamstring injury rehab and we say, okay, well, this is conventional practice or this is what the, the clinical guidelines recommend. And that doesn't necessarily mean today in 2019, that's what, you know, good practitioners at elite clubs or even, you know, good practitioners in, in private practice are doing from a rehab point of view because, you know, hopefully they're, they're up to date with recent research and they're seeing these uh, things come out and perhaps, you know, challenging those conventional guidelines a little bit. But in terms of when we say traditional rehab, I suppose we're talking about the typical sort of, I suppose, I often use the term the more medical approach to, to rehabilitation in that, um, yes, we have an injury and we need to allow that injury to, to heal. Um, in terms of the pathophysiology, we've got to allow it to go through uh, certain timeframes for healing. And then the way that we load that tissue throughout that period um, is often dictated um Traditionally, it was dictated probably by time and I think over the past, uh, I'd say, five to ten years, um, there's certainly been a shift from the more, uh, it's been termed sort of time-based rehabilitation more to the criteria-based rehabilitation, um, which allows for a much more individualised approach um, to particularly acute muscle injury management where you have injuries of different severities and different athletes who respond differently. So I think that has certainly improved. The thing that I suppose we identified, um, and this was sort of part of uh, my PhD studies, um, we sort of wanted to look at, well, how if we're implementing criteria-based rehab, how do we go about making the decision to progress through different stages of rehabilitation and, and what are those criteria for progression? And the thing for us that, that kept coming up was this thing about pain and that pain avoidance or being pain-free on different tests or just being pain-free when performing exercise was the most common, uh, I guess, guideline that, that kept popping up uh, in the research. And, you know, that, that was a, a theme that we identified throughout a systematic review that we did on the topic um, and, yeah, found that it was the, the pain-free performance of exercise was the thing that then dictated whether we then progressed on to make an exercise harder and more challenging. Um, when you look back at that and where that came from, you sort of have to dig a little bit and it's sort of, it's one of those things that's, we've always done it because it makes sense. It's, it's common sense to say, well, if something hurts, we're going to make it, you know, easier to the point where it doesn't hurt and I can perform it without pain. And that's something that, you know, I've previously done clinically many, many times and in certain situations, you know, potentially would, would still do. But um, if you actually take a, an objective look at it, there's actually never been any uh, research from an acute muscle injury point of view to directly challenge whether we actually need to be completely pain-free following an acute muscle injury and perhaps whether we allow uh, some level of pain during exercise, do we have any additional benefits um, in terms of the amount of exercise we can do or how quickly we can progress through rehab. So from a traditional point of view, I suppose um, when we talk about that, it's 
generally speaking, the the avoidance of pain, and probably being fairly conservative in our in our loading. And when I say conservative in loading, that's looking specifically at loading the injured hamstring muscle. Um, and I think probably the two key areas of hamstring injury rehab where the, the hamstring is placed under stress is clearly during hamstring strength training, um, but also during the progression of running and the progression towards high-speed running are probably the two key uh, elements there. So what's the alternative? So, I, I mean, I guess it's human nature. If something hurts, don't do it. So in terms of educating the athlete into that, how, how is what's the alternative to if it hurts, let's stop? Yeah. Look, I think, and, and when we, we looked at that, we sort of, um, the first thing was identifying, well, clearly, if that's the barrier to progression of rehabilitation and exercise, as you mentioned, we've got to consider what's the alternative. And, you know, that's where we sort of turn to research in, in other areas or just clinical practice in, in other areas of, um, you know, sports and musculoskeletal injury rehabilitation. And the concept of uh, pain monitoring and pain education during exercise, it's not something that's new and we don't for a minute claim that we've come up with it or that it's something that, that we developed because, you know, if you look at the the research, I mean, as far back as 1997, which, I mean, I'm, not, I'm 30 years old now but I was only, what, eight years old then in 1997, so it's a while ago now. Um, so there was a, a Swedish group that, um, you know, basically came out with this pain monitoring model and applied that to female athletes with patellofemoral joint pain. And, you know, showed that it wasn't detrimental to exercise uh, to a level of pain that in that pain monitoring model, they allow the continuation of exercise up to five out of 10 on a zero to 10 numeric pain rating scale. And I mean, that pain monitoring model was then adopted by like Karen Silbernagel and, and her colleagues with Achilles tendinopathy. I think that was around 2001. Um, and then we've seen that pain monitoring model or variants of that used throughout musculoskeletal rehabilitation literature and certainly in clinical practice with more chronic or more overuse or it's termed overuse type injuries. So, uh, you know, things like patellofemoral joint pain, Achilles tendinopathy, um, even there's some work in uh, post um, post-surgical interventions, so post-knee arthroplasty, uh, some work allowing pain during exercise. And we sort of thought, well, okay, that, that's been applied with, you know, relative safety in, in those populations and in some cases some, some better outcomes. Um, what about acute muscle injury rehabilitation? And it, it probably hadn't really been um, implemented in a, in a trial before. Um, there's certainly reports in the literature and, and I'm sure if you talk to practitioners, some people will say, yeah, well, I've prescribed ex- exercise up to pain before and so we don't, again, claim that it's something completely new. But I think what, what we then proposed was a, a sort of a variant of the pain monitoring model and we just termed it pain threshold rehabilitation and, and really allowed a, a group of athletes to perform uh, exercise rehabilitation up to a, a limit of pain and we used four out of 10 as our limit. Now, whether you have a, an arbitrary cutoff such as that or not is probably up for debate, but um, we really just used four out of 10 and we looked at the the, the Tommy pain monitoring model. It was the, the Swedish researcher who came up with that and we thought, well, five out of 10, it's acute muscle injury. Let's be slightly more conservative and we'll go four out of 10. Um, and yeah, we implemented that as part of a, a randomized controlled trial. So um, I think the thing that uh, that our group was able to do with that is I suppose directly ask the question, what is the effect of allowing exercise 
up to a pain threshold of four out of 10 compared to the conventional practice of remaining completely pain-free or avoiding pain during the performance of exercise rehabilitation, but get those athletes to perform the exact same exercises and the same uh, progression, except for the fact that one group was allowed to do it with within pain-free limits and one was allowed to do it within pain threshold limits. So what was the outcome of that? Yeah, so I mean, the outcome of that study and um, – that study has uh, now just been accepted for, for publication in uh, the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, which we're uh, really happy about and, and certainly very relieved. It's a, a long process, the peer review process, and um, yeah, we've been very fortunate or I've certainly been very fortunate to be able to present some of that work at conferences um, around the place sort of over the last couple of years because we, we actually did finish um, you know, the data collection for that sort of the end of two thousand and. and uh, 17. Um, so this is what I mean about research does take time in terms of its um, yeah. you know, ability to get out there. And one of the beauties of, um, I suppose, the, the the current age of social media and, um, you know, conferences and, and things like that is that we were able to present that work, um, you know, even in preliminary form sort of early days. Um, and it got some traction and, you know, I was you know, very taken aback at the response that it got um, from a lot of people, which was, was really nice. Um, and, you know, then going through the peer review process and it's at times a, a tough one and it, you know, can leave you a bit disheartened at times. But at the end of the day, it improves the quality of your, your manuscript and it, um, you know, makes sure that the findings are really robust. So hopefully that that's, uh, will be online soon and available, um, you know, for everyone to view. But in terms of the findings, for people unfamiliar with the work, I suppose the, the key take home was that allowing pain threshold exercise wasn't detrimental. Um, as probably point number one. So we didn't see, um, you know, any um, drastic effects as far as, you know, causing re-injuries or, you know, guys weren't pulling up super sore or anything like that from allowing pain during exercise. Um, I suppose then when we compared the two two groups as far as the main outcome people care about in terms of um, getting back to sport or return to play clearance, um, for us, in terms of an outcome, we looked at return to play clearance time, so meeting objective and subjective criteria um, for us to say, okay, you can now go back to full training. There was no difference between the two groups as far as that outcome goes. So certainly that pain threshold approach didn't accelerate the actual um, what would be termed clinical recovery, I suppose. But what we did see with the pain threshold uh, group was um, some greater improvements in terms of knee flexor strength. Um, and we also saw some uh, more longer-term adaptations or longer-term improvements is probably a better word uh, in terms of some architectural improvements. So as part of the study, uh, we looked at biceps femoris long head fascicle length, which um, for those familiar with the research will know that it's a, a modifiable risk factor for hamstring strain injury, just, just one of one of many risk factors, but certainly a relatively potent one. Um, and those pain threshold guys saw a greater improvement or a more uh, sustained improvement, I should say, at a follow-up time point in that outcome measure. So long story short, the, the differences between the groups are quite minor, but I think the exciting thing is that we were able to show that by allowing exercise to be performed up to a pain threshold, it wasn't detrimental. And what it did allow us to do was perform certain exercises throughout rehabilitation uh, earlier than probably what is conventionally thought to be, um, I suppose, safe 
Um, and, you know, we found that it was completely safe and we're able to expose, expose athletes to, um, you know, relatively high intensity loading fairly early in rehabilitation to probably an extent that we were even surprised with at the time um, when we were doing it. And that just means in a short time frame, if you've got an athlete with a relatively minor hamstring strain injury who may be in rehab for even two weeks or even if it's three weeks, if you think about especially those working in private practice, you may see that client or that athlete uh, you know, two or three times throughout that period. And so you really want to be progressing them as quickly as you can and getting as much load into them as they can before they go back to sport. Um, and I think that's the really exciting thing with that pain threshold approach. It, it does allow us to do that. So what, what were the exercises that we, you were able to introduce earlier than what may have been traditionally accepted? Yeah, so, I mean, we put together a, a rehab protocol that we like to think is, is relatively straightforward and hopefully easy to follow for people and, you know, um, Again, when that, that paper becomes available, um, people will be able to see that. And um, hopefully, we like to think one of the strengths is it's relatively implementable um, in most most environments. Um, in terms of the exercises, we basically, we took a fairly focused approach towards um, hamstring strengthening and, and certainly with an emphasis on developing eccentric knee flexor strength, also hip extension strength, um, and also really targeting biceps femoris long head adaptations. So the exercises will be selected with somewhat informed by, you know, some of our group's work um, in terms of Matt Bourne's uh, PhD work where he showed that not only the Nordic hamstring exercise but also uh, the 45-degree hip extension exercise are both really beneficial for eccentric strength and biceps fem fascicle, uh, long head fascicle uh, adaptations. Uh, so basically what we did is we implemented – three exercises from the get-go in rehabilitation. And I think one of the important things to probably note and that might get misinterpreted by some people when reading this work, as I said, the difference between the pain-free and the pain threshold group wasn't that great. And part of that we feel is because the rehab protocol implemented or the exercises implemented were the same across the whole cohort. So regardless of what group uh, participants were randomly allocated to, in their first rehabilitation session, they all attempted bilateral variations of three exercises. So they did a, a hamstring bridge, so like a 45-degree hip and knee uh, hamstring bridge. Uh, they did a 45-degree bilateral hip extension on like a Roman chair, uh, and they attempted a bilateral eccentric sliding leg curl. So um, if you've never seen that exercise, it's effectively like performing a glute bridge. And then when you're up in the glute bridge, you've got your heels on something that's going to slide away from you and you maintain hip extension and your knees go slowly into extension and you're using your knee flexors to eccentrically uh, try to decelerate that movement as, as best you can. So we actually just exposed all of our athletes or all of our injured individuals to those three exercises from the get-go in rehab. And then it was within their either pain-free or pain threshold limits that were allowed to continue and even progress those exercises on a on an individual basis, um, which wasn't sort of determined by um, predetermined criteria in terms of passing a certain clinical test or a certain time frame from injury. We actually just took what we think is a pretty straightforward approach of saying, if we want to know when an athlete can progress an exercise, well, let's see if they can do a low-level version of that exercise. And if they can tolerate that, we'll increase the intensity, we'll increase their rep range, and we'll push them a little bit harder to the point where it exceeds their limits, and then we bring them back a little bit. Um, and so those three exercises are performed from the start. 
each of those bilateral exercises, when the athlete can perform the uh, prescribed repetition range through full range of motion within their allocated group's uh, pain limits, that will then progress to a unilateral variation, so a single leg hamstring bridge, a single leg hip extension, and a single leg slider, which is certainly a much more challenging eccentric knee flexor movement. Um, and at the time point when they progressed from the bilateral slider to the single leg slider, they were also exposed to the, the Nordic hamstring exercise at that point. So they were basically the, the strength exercises we had in the rehabilitation. And then there was also a running component uh, to our rehabilitation where we used a very simple um, sort of shuttle running uh, model and progressive running model, which is based on the work of uh, Amy Silder and her colleagues where they uh, implemented that as part of a, a randomized controlled trial back in 2013. Um, we implemented that pretty much that same protocol, just with some modifications uh, to the distances covered, which was really, to be honest, largely limited by the, the space we have available uh, here in Metro Melbourne. Um, and we were not blessed to have a, a running track or anything like that here at ACU in Melbourne, unfortunately, but we do have a 50-metre laneway down between two of the buildings, so uh, that was where we did our running. Um, but basically that was, you know, acceleration, um, hold, deceleration, um, starting at a walk, jog, walk, and then progressing um, through to a, you know, jog, run, jog, and then a run, sprint, run, so relatively straightforward and basic sort of stuff. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Jack. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss the role of isometric training. We discuss some uh, examples of exercise progressions uh, when returning to running and some more on uh, testing and benchmarking um, during the rehabilitation process. So hopefully, oh, I know it is because I've been involved in it, um, a really interesting uh, part two coming up with Jack. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Now they have done projects uh, all over Europe uh, with Swiss rowing in Dubai, private facilities over there, um, Everton Football Club, numerous other sites um, all around Europe and the UK. So if you are interested in uh, adding to what you've got, whether it be new bars, plates, racks, flooring, um, or you want a complete gym fit out and get all the above um, all at once, make sure you do consider the guys at Blackbox. Really good set of guys. Everything's made on site in Belfast, which would personally give me um, a lot of reassurance that everything that's that's made is that I'm getting is made there. Um, please consider Blackbox. They are at uh, blkboxfitness.com uh, is their website. And you can also follow them uh, on Twitter and Instagram and see some of their projects at BLK Box Fitness. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, 
head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So coming back to something that you've you mentioned a couple of times, and that's the the actual criteria for progression and indeed regression if need be. Is that what you implemented there and what you just spoke about in terms of making it a very individualized approach rather than a, a specific passing a specific test or hitting a specific time frame, which we've obviously we've chatted about anyway? Is that something that you not only did for this research study, but you would do in the field as well? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think that's the key the key thing for me as as a practitioner, I think um, the, the take home that the learnings from this research project for me was that progressing exercise um, during rehabilitation for hamstring strain injury and my, my personal approach is to apply this um, to any injury and again I, I don't think it's rocket science I think it's a fairly straightforward approach is to be exercise specific um, in terms of how you progress. Um, now this is where we think the key point comes in relation to in relation to the what we think were the benefits from this rehabilitation protocol, it wasn't necessarily the pain threshold or the pain-free approach. It was more the fact that both of those groups of participants were exposed to this more exercise-specific approach. So what we mean by that is if you look at um, most criteria-based programs out there, they obviously put in place some some tests or some barriers to move from, let's say, stage one rehabilitation to stage two of rehabilitation and so on and so forth. And you'll have, you know, a group of exercises in stage one and you'll have a group of exercises in stage two. And the criteria that progress uh, between those stages, uh, what we found when looking at the literature, and this was part of our systematic review, what we found is that it was typically um, clinical assessments or tests of performance so things like being able to perform certain tasks without pain it might be a range of motion test it might be a manual muscle test it could even be something like walking pain free or or whatever a combination of those tests then provided uh, the criteria to dictate whether we progressed from a certain type of exercise to another when we looked at that i suppose with a bit of a critical thinking hat on sort of went well if you if i want to know when an athlete is ready to perform a Nordic hamstring exercise, is lying on a bed doing a range of motion assessment or palpation of the muscle or an isometric strength test really going to assess whether they're able to, I guess, deal with the demands of the Nordic hamstring exercise just as an example or any other exercise. So what we thought was, well, let's just take a more exercise-specific approach where we start our athletes, as I mentioned, with three fairly sub-maximal hamstring strengthening exercises and just progress and regress on a continuum based on their tolerance to that exercise. Um, And by no means do we think we're the first people to do that. I mean, uh, Carl Askling has implemented that as part of his L protocol um, where he introduces those three um, exercises, the extender, the glider, and the diver, and he, he brings those in from the uh, from five days post-injury and then basically just progresses as tolerated by the athlete rather than, I suppose, you compare to some criteria-based protocols where you might have a barrier such as being pain-free on an isometric knee flexor strength test. And if you use that as a barrier, that's the thing that's stopping you maybe from progressing from a double leg hamstring bridge to a Romanian deadlift, for example. Whereas for me, there's perhaps a little bit of a disconnect between those those things. Um, and so we'd prefer to progress rehab based on how that person 
can perform that particular movement. Um, if it is a double leg bridge, for example, if they can perform 10 to 12 reps of that within acceptable pain limits um, and the athlete feels okay to progress, then we're going to progress them to a unilateral variation. Um, and the important thing I think is the progression doesn't stop there. We need to be able to continually challenge. Um, and if we just think about the basic principles of exercise prescription and, and strength and conditioning, you know, we need to be able to load the tissue to a point where we stress it in order to cause the desired adaptation. And so, you know, once you can perform a single leg bridge with a within a prescribed rep range, then we need to add maybe an external load or progress to a, a similar exercise. Maybe it's a hip thruster or something like that. Um, and that's certainly what we um, implement with with our athletes, not just in this study, but, you know, when I see um, athletes here in the clinic and, and we um, are looking at progressing their rehab, that's the approach that uh, that we definitely take. Excellent. So just changing tact a little bit, but keeping it obviously in this same theme, in terms of the running loads and the and potentially some examples of, of when you would introduce running and, and what type of running, intensities, times, et cetera, where does when when and where does that fit in? Yeah, yeah. So with the the running, as I mentioned, we had a, a relatively straightforward sort of protocol, and in terms of the you know the criteria that we used, um, we really were looking at again what we think is pretty exercise specific. Once the athlete could walk pain free, or if they were in the pain threshold group, once they could walk, you know, with normal walking gait within four out of ten pain or less. Um, that's when we introduced our progressive running protocol and it started off very gentle and very easy. But I think what we found is that athletes can really tolerate low-level running very, very early for the most part. Um, and by doing that, again, you're allowing more individual response. So if someone can't tolerate walking um, and they can't tolerate running, well, then we're not going to do it with them. Rather than saying, okay, day five, we start running because who's to say, Rob, that you with a hamstring injury who, you know, might be tolerating that really well versus me who might be really struggling, you know, we should be more individualized than that. So with the running, it was um, based on their, their normal walking gait. So, you know, are they able to walk without a limp, without pain, or if it was with low levels of pain in that pain threshold group, um, we'd then introduce them to a walk, jog, walk. So, you know, our 50-metre distance basically starts off uh, – well, 50-metre total distance. We've got like a 20-metre acceleration. We've got a 10-metre hold and then a 20-metre deceleration. So it's simple as walking from that first cone, walking 20 metres, breaking into a very, very slow jog for 10 metres and then decelerating back to a walk for the next 20. If they can tolerate that, you know, we then change those axel and decel uh, markers. So we just go from uh, like a 15 – uh, 15 acceleration, 20 hold, 15 meter deceleration. And then our last progression point was basically a 10 meter acceleration, 30 meter hold, 10 meter deceleration. So if they can do a walk, jog, walk through all of those levels, you know, then we're going to progress them to a jog, run, jog. Now, within those categories, there's obviously the progression of your running speed. Um, it's not going to be linear. And uh, what we found, and I'm sure what and in speaking with other practitioners, what um, I know that they've experienced as well is generally speaking, athletes progress with their, their running uh, apparently pretty quickly. So, you know, one day they can't they can't walk without pain and then a couple of days later they're, they're up to jogging or maybe even running at sort of 60 
and they see that as okay well that's that's going to reflect in my recovery from this injury i've gone from you know two days post i couldn't walk and then four days post i'm now jogging at 60 70 maybe running at 70 percent and they think oh sweet that means it's a linear progression i'm going to be back in three or four more days and you know as i'm sure if you know you've dealt with people with hamstring strain injuries before you'll know that that's when you've really got to be careful and you've got to pull the reins a little bit with those athletes and explain to them that in particular the hamstring muscles and especially biceps femoris longhead which as we know is the the most commonly injured of the hamstring muscles it's most active and it, it's really required to do the most amount of work during those higher speeds. So really 80% and above or between 80 and 100% of, you know, maximum velocity running. So, you know, we get might get to that 70 or 80% within a week of rehabilitation, but it might take another two weeks um, for them to be able to get back to, you know, maximal sprinting. And that's a real education process uh, with the injured athlete and making sure they understand that, um, especially if they're going to be doing some running unsupervised. Um, it's really important to just give them some boundaries and explain to them that the progression through those later stages of high-speed running um, will likely be a little bit slower. Um, and so even just using some visuals and showing them that you know it might be pretty rapid and a pretty steep curve initially, it's likely to plateau a little bit. And to probably get buy-in from the athletes there, I think one thing that's quite useful is explaining that it's a good thing because it means that it gives them more time to expose themselves to those high-speed running loads, which is what's critical um, from a preventative and from a um, rehabilitation point of view, in my opinion. Um, exposure to high-speed running loads is probably the most critical thing if that's um, often the mechanism of injury, but also the activity that you need to get the athlete back to. Um, you know, At the end of the day, we're not getting the athlete back to if they're an Australian rules footballer or they're a, they're a soccer player, you know, they don't really care about whether they can do a, you know, a really nice quality RDL or, you know, they're pulling 500 newtons when they do a Nordic or whatever. That's not the point. The point is that they can run at high speeds and perform in their sport. So, um, yeah, getting that education aspect with the high speed running um, and the, the likely response, um, it's not going to be the same for everyone, of course, but um, – yeah, getting the athlete to understand that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to ask you to tell the, the listeners how to suck eggs, but in terms of progressing that from the kind of um, walk, jog, walk to the uh, jog, run, jog type of scenario, where would you take it from there? And just maybe some examples would be really, really um, helpful. Yeah, sure. And, and I'll, look, I'll probably preface this by saying this is the protocol that we implemented as part of the randomized control trial. And, you know, certainly that was somewhat limited by study design and logistics and, and all that kind of thing. And um, I certainly don't profess to be an expert in the area of, um, you know, high-speed running rehabilitation or, or anything like that. And even the on-field rehabilitation aspect, there's certainly people out there. And I know you've had uh, JB Moran on the podcast before talk about, you know, the, the objective monitoring of, of those variables and um, you know, I certainly think that's something that um, you know we'd like to do a lot more of in, in future projects as well because you know we just had guys just self-rating their um, their running speed and running performance. Um, but at the end of the day, that's what probably most practitioners are dealing with. So hopefully, it's um, of, of somewhat use to them. But um, in terms of in that study, that was a pretty pretty basic progression from there. One thing that we did allow is that once they were at the point where they were running at about seventy percent. 
Um, and sort of that's just at the stage before we're what we classed as sort of a high speed running of moving into 70, 80 and then, and then upwards from there. When they were at that point, we were often trying to integrate them back into their team training um, in, in that particular study. Um, and so at that time point, we just explained to them that it's okay for them to do things um, within their team training that are up to that speed. So just to not exceed the, I guess, the top speed that they'd done in rehab running to that point. Um, and I think that's important because it it keeps a little bit more of a, um, a flow between the off-field and the on-field rehabilitation. And that's probably important from a buy-in perspective from the athlete in terms of making sure that they engage with it and that they, they're not removed from the uh, their team environment and, you know, they're not probably not as frustrated because they're able to still get out in the field and uh, participate in training and, um, you know, actually be engaged in, in that sense. So I think that's the, probably an important point. Um, but then in terms of how we've sort of progressed from there, from once, once they're jogging, that next progression step is then going from a, a jog, run, jog, and they're at that 70% to then looking at, I mean, those same distances apply. They might start with a 70% lead in and they've got 20 metre acceleration, 10 centimetre hold, then you a uh, 10 centimetre, 10 metre hold, and then a 20 metre hold at the end. Um, and, you know, if, rather than going from 70 to 80, what I'd be encouraging them to do is even don't even put a number on it, just say, I just want you to just take it up a little bit higher than a 70 and then wind it back. Um, and just making those little gradual increases through that acceleration zone to the limit that they feel comfortable with. Um, from a practical standpoint, when doing those acceleration, deceleration runs, um, what I was often really encouraging the athletes to do, particularly in the early stages, is avoid a real, and what the term that I would use with them is kind of like a light switch response. You don't want to get to the cone and then you can't just switch from you know running at 60% to 80% like that. You, you're sort of winding up and winding down and that's the reason for having a, a longer acceleration and a longer deceleration period you know, in those earlier stages um, of each level of progressive running. And then as they progress, we shorten those distances for the reason that they have to sort of be a bit more reactive and accelerate off the mark a little bit quicker. So you're progressively um, increasing their ability to do that. Um, the other thing that we didn't have in as part of our running protocol at all was, you know, obviously things like change of direction and, um, you know, moving through the frontal plane and all that kind of stuff, which is clearly important in um, in a sporting environment. And unless you're Usain Bolt and a 100-meter sprinter, you know, you kind of need to twist and change direction and bend down and pick up a ball or kick or execute a skill under pressure. So that on-field rehab element really needs to come in as early as possible, I think. Um, we didn't control that as part of our uh, our study, but in terms of just my own practice, um, that's something that I certainly implement a lot more in terms of getting some change of direction as part of their rehabilitation and encouraging them to do that stuff on field as much as possible, I think is, is really critical. Mm -hmm. So just taking it right back to some of the stuff that we mentioned at the start and back into a gym environment, isometric training, what is your opinion on, on that modality for, for hamstring injury rehab, where it should be implemented, when it should be implemented to get your um, recommendations, advice on that would be, would be really interesting. Yeah, sure. And again, it probably ties back a little bit to what we spoke about earlier with the, the mechanisms of injury and people like to, or just my perception is a lot of the time, people like to probably put themselves in one camp or the other um, or potentially even, um, you know, 
probably say that some people are in a camp but when they're when they're not necessarily and I think our group certainly often get accused of being you know only advocates for eccentric strength training and that's all we do and and this and that and to be honest that probably don't pay much attention to that because you know I know that when we work with an athlete in the gym where we are doing more than just eccentric you know knee flexor exercises we're doing other things um in terms of isometric uh training I think that I think the important thing is to appreciate that there's probably a time and a place for for everything, and outside the realms of a, a randomised control trial, you know, you need to be making some decisions on a, a case by case basis and the needs of each individual athlete. Um, I think a lot of the, I suppose, proposed benefits of isometric training as part of prevention and rehabilitation of hamstring strains. Um, some of it has been centred a little bit around um, the intramuscular tendon involvement. Um, with uh, hamstring strains and, and when an injury involves that. I've seen some suggestion out there that um, that may be um, the, the targeted approach and I, I'd probably, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, I'd probably just preface it by saying we don't necessarily have evidence that isometric training is superior to eccentric training or vice versa for um, that particular injury and, and that's where we do need a lot more work done in that space, I think. Um, I think the isometric the advocation for isometric exercise in rehab for me is if you can't get a stimulus uh, for the muscular tendinous unit through a, a conventional isotonic or an eccentric contraction and the isometric mode is, you know, an alternative way of doing so, then fantastic. I think it's a it's a way of loading, loading the muscle. Um, from a preventative point of view and speaking with some practitioners in the field, I know that they use isometric hamstring loading because it obviously doesn't then lead to the delayed onset muscle soreness that eccentric exercise does. So from an in-season management point of view, you can get some strength stimulus uh, into your athletes without um, creating that delayed onset muscle soreness, which might impede their ability to train the next day or or something similar. Um, To come back from a rehab point of view, I suppose uh, one thing of interest out of uh, the work that we did and some, I guess, observational findings from our randomized control trial was that our athletes actually were able to tolerate eccentric loading particularly a lot better than they were isometric knee flexor, in particular knee flexor contractions. So this was a finding that was... um, as I said, completely observational and it wasn't part of our predetermined research question or anything like that. But what it showed me is that eccentric loading during rehab is actually fairly well tolerated regardless of whether our guys are in the pain-free or the pain threshold group. Um, a lot of the time they came in for their clinical assessments, which we did as part of their um, their visits each time they came into, uh, into the uni here. And they might perform isometric uh, strength tests and they'd often report pain during those tests, particularly in, in early rehabilitation, which we'd, we'd expect. And they'd often then also display objective deficits in, in knee flexor strength during those isometric tests between their injured and their uninjured limb. Now, conventional criteria suggests that if someone has pain during an isometric contraction and they have between leg deficits in isometric strength, especially deficits of greater than sort of 10%, um, a lot of the time we've seen in the literature that it's advocated not to perform um, eccentric uh, hamstring loading. But because we implemented that exercise-specific criteria that we sort of touched on before, we had 
um, quite a number of athletes who came in and presented with pain during a number of different clinical assessments, isometric strength tests being one of them, and between leg deficits. But because they performed certain exercises with completely pain-free, they were progressed. And so for me, one of the more interesting findings from that work was that despite pain and between leg deficits and isometric tests, they were able to progress through particularly eccentric loading, so to exercises like the Nordic hamstring exercise uh, and also a unilateral eccentric slider or even a long-length exercise like a single-leg Roman chair hip extension with even sometimes 10, 15 kilo plates on their chest and they could perform those exercises pain-free, which to me as a practitioner was, was really interesting and told me that I probably shouldn't be making my decisions related to exercise progression based on independent clinical assessments, but I should be making those decisions based on their performance of exercises. So to come back to the isometric point, I think it's that um, in my experience, I've often seen that athletes have tolerated eccentric exercise sometimes better than uh, isometric exercises and even uh, conventional concentric eccentric exercises um, we're often the slowest to progress. So I mentioned before those sort of three streams of exercises. We had the the 45-degree hamstring bridge, which was a conventional um, up-down concentric eccentric movement. I had a lot of guys in that study and people who I see um, clinically now who they might be only performing you know, partial range, double leg, 45-degree hip ex- um bridges for hamstring bridges for example and not able to complete a full set of 10 but they can perform three sets of six Nordic hamstring exercise with absolutely no pain um, so it shows that there's perhaps a difference and a discrepancy between the type of contraction modes there and the stress that it puts on the uh, the injured muscle superb well I'm not going to dig any deeper on that because I've already kept you longer than I, I promised but just reminders. Um, by the way, I'm going to try and chat to you after this and get a, a list of the um, the research that you've mentioned, so I can link to that. Um, I mean, people can have a read as well as as well as listen to this episode. But um, dates for the Notre Dame conference, if people want to um, want to get involved, that's 21st and 22nd of June, isn't it? So three weeks from when this episode goes out. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yep. And where can people get in touch with you, ask any questions about hamstring rehab or anything else we've, we've chatted about today? Yeah, for sure. I mean, always always happy to chat. And um, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the, the benefits of things like social media is you can engage with uh, different people. And I, I found it um, you know, extremely beneficial for myself to, to engage with different people. So, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm on, on Twitter um, and I'm just looking now as to what my actual handle is, which I think is just my name. So Jack Hickey, uh, 89. So I've given away my age straight away there as well. Rob. <laughs> um, yeah. So feel free to, to hit me up on there or, um, you know, send me a message or, or whatever. And I, I'm more than happy to, to chat or answer questions or, or hear ideas as well. I think one thing that we always encourage, particularly for people who are working, um, not just in elite sport, but, you know, um, in, private practice, rehab or, or whatever, um, is hearing questions from those people actually often helps inform our own research and what we do. Um, and it's really important that we engage with those people and we've often, we often find in those conversations we're the ones that end up asking most of the questions of them. So um, I, find, I find it really valuable. So, yeah, always happy to, to, uh, to have a chat and 
um, yeah, engage with people people there as well. Lovely. So twenty first and twenty second, get in front of uh, getting the audience and listen to Jack talk about hamstring injuries. Yeah, so I should mention as well. I think it's the uh, the Saturday, the twenty second. I think is when I'll be having a chat. But I should also mention just as part of the session that that I'll be talking. And uh, I've also got uh, Dr. Teddy Wilsey and also Matt Boyd um, from from Healthy Baller, um, who will be talking about injury management. So the three of us will be presenting on um, you know moving from pre screening through to return to play. Um, so hopefully. Um, and chatting with those guys, I know we're sort of trying to um, you know, get together and, and look at moving from from right at the time of injury through progression in rehab, which I'll probably touch on, uh, right through to sort of return to play and return to performance, um, which is something that um, we'll have a big focus on at that conference. And um, you know, certainly some other fantastic presenters. You mentioned Shona, uh, Shona before. Um, as well as Jeremy Shepard, Grant Duthie from ACU. So some really great, great people there. And, um, yeah, if, if, if anyone's in the States, uh, come along. And um, worst case, you can come find me and have a beer and we'll have a chat. It'll be great. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, mate. Really appreciate it. And all the links to the, to the conference and I'll chat with you after about getting the links to the papers that you mentioned. Um, I'll stick them all on Twitter so people can, uh, people can easily access them. But thanks a lot, Jack. Really appreciate it. And I'll chat to you soon, mate. Awesome, Rob. Been an absolute pleasure, mate. Keep up the good work. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 243 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Firstly, and big big thanks to Jack for giving up his time on, a, on an evening to, uh, to come on the podcast and share some of his wisdom around hamstring injuries. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, and the guys at uh, Australian Catholic University, and Notre Dame. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do. So every Thursday UK time, a expert will enter your phone so you can listen on the go, in the car. Um, it's better than listening to the radio. So yes, so press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And thank you again for all your support, whether you listen to one episode or 243 episodes. So thanks for tuning in and I'll speak to you next week.